dark legends that have circulated throughout the world since ancient times. Tales of headless friends dwelling in the forests or she-demons disguised as beautiful maidens who allure unsuspecting men to their grotesque deaths due to their sexual interests. However, this is one story that has been told since the Middle Ages that details the gruesome and hideous fate of an oppressive ruler who had committed heinous crimes against his people. In the witch-cursed and haunted country of Germany, there is a lonely, eerie-looking stone tower that stands on a small, isolated island in the Rhine that serves as a chilling reminder of a horrific event that occurred hundreds of years ago. The tower is famously known as the Mouse Tower. Long ago, when Europe was primarily governed by the Roman Catholic Church, the tower was once the property of a cruel and oppressive archbishop who never hesitated to exploit and impose his authority on the poor and peasants of the land. Each day, whenever he passed through the town, they would be legally obligated to pay tribute to him. They would bow to him and make small offerings to him with pastries or occasionally a small sum of money. He often walked surrounded by bodyguards, and if anyone did not show the respect he thought he deserved, he would immediately order the execution of the transgressor, and they would kill them right there, often in a quick but very bloody fashion. The initial use of the then unnamed Mouse Tower was a platform and lookout for passing ships. On it, the Archbishop had placed archers and crossbowmen. If any vessel passed by without paying their proper tribute to him, they would be greeted by a storm of arrows. Old nautical records detail stories of people finding ghost ships aimlessly sailing around what is now called the North Sea, filled with people long dead after having their bodies mutilated by arrows. Rumor has it that the religious tyrant was far worse than he seemed. Not only was he a draconian ruler, but he was also a sadist. Within the tower, he would supposedly relish in torturing innocent peasant girls who could not defend themselves, after being given false charges on crimes they didn't commit. They dreaded the tower, and often claimed that they saw people being led in there by guards of the archbishop, and many never came out. There was no doubt that this religious authoritative figure had quite an unpleasant reputation going around. Many resented him and saw him as nothing more than a nefarious man who used the name of their lord and savior for the sake of fulfilling his own selfish wants. But since the peasantry was primarily illiterate and ignorant of how to govern themselves, they had no choice but to obey him. 
To make matters worse, during his reign, a great famine struck, and the vast majority of them were left without food. Deaths resulted of numerous infants, children, and elders of the peasant class. The streets echoed with their mourning and endless weeping of families as the angel Death wandered invisibly and drained their souls from their bodies when the time came. These lamentations, however, fell upon deaf ears, as the archbishop was indifferent to them and their petty loss. Although his village was suffering from severe famine, he had stored tons of grain in private barns and storehouses. Since he was the only one in town with such a huge amount of food, he monopolized it and decided to put his products up for sale at extremely high prices. Starving and furious, the peasantry decided to rebel against their cruel and wicked leader. The archbishop was indeed greedy and evil, but he was also cunning. He devised a malevolent plot to lure the peasants to an old barn, where he promised to supply them with a modest amount of grain to feed themselves and their families. The peasantry, fooled by the wicked bishop's promise, began to praise and thank him. They thought for sure he was finally going to nourish them and look over his people like a good ruler of the world. They eagerly ventured off to find the barn in which he said he would meet them. The bishop, however, had much more sinister plans. When he arrived with a large throng of his troops, he saw that there were indeed thousands upon thousands of famished peasants waiting for him. This fit perfectly into his plan. Immediately, he ordered his soldiers to seal the door of the barn and then to light torches and burn it down. With this wicked act of deception, the entire barn was set alight and the unfortunate peasants screamed in horror and agony as the flames consumed their flesh. The flames engulfed the interior so badly that at one point the burning folk could not even see one another. Some cried out to Christ to save them from this dreadful fate, while others merely sat there in a slightly maddened state as they allowed the unforgiving fires to consume them. It was as if in that fiendish trick they were being devoured by the fires of hell itself. As the archbishop watched the barn perish within the flames, he laughed to himself. He had thought himself doing good since the peasants, like filthy mice, ate all the grains and left little to nothing. He felt he was fulfilling his duty as a ruler of the town to remove these infernal wretches. He heard the cries and screams of horror, rage and pleas for mercy coming out of the barn, and as he heard them, he turned to his guards and mockingly said, Listen to those pitiful mice squeak. The troops, who themselves were sadistic and took pleasure in carrying out the orders of their cruel commanding officer, laughed merrily at the misfortune of the peasants. When the screams finally settled, the bishop and his soldiers returned to his castle, where he enjoyed a succulent banquet and retired to his bedroom feeling as innocent as ever, despite his murderous deed only hours before. His sleep, however, was not as pleasant as his meal. The ruler dreamed himself standing in front of a burned-down rotting barn in the forest, 
It appeared to be nighttime, but there was no moon or any stars visible, and it would have been pitch black had it not been for a light source coming in front of him within the barn. As he stared at it, he felt a pang of horror seize his heart. Inside of the destroyed barn were numerous ghostly fires floating about, resting on top of sticks. As he studied it more closely, he could see shadowy, grotesque figures standing inside of it, holding the man-made torches and seemingly examining him back. The figures had glowing, threatening, bloody eyes that shook the soul of the bishop. The more he gazed at them, the more he felt a sense of horrid loathing of them, and they made him feel dizzy with fear. Then they began to approach him with their free arms outstretched, groaning in a vengeful way. When they stepped out of the barn, their tomb, he saw their hideously scarred faces, jaws hanging half off the face, mouths that exposed more than just the gums, but the bones and roots of the teeth as well, and patches of the skull burned through and shone at the cheeks and foreheads. The archbishop shot up in bed, his screams echoing throughout the castle. He woke up, shivering violently, and wrapped his arms around himself to calm himself as sweat poured down his face. As he sat there panting and finally calming down after that putrid dream, he suddenly saw his black cat eyeing the outside intently. The cat was not observing something casually as cats sometimes do when something catches their interest, with their tails swaying back and forth. The cat had spotted something that clearly made it nervous, as it appeared to be frozen in mid-walk, with everything on it completely still, and no amount of noise could draw its attention away from the window. Although he had been scared out of his mind moments before, Sleepiness returned to him once more. He felt the adrenaline rush of fear beginning to wane, and he laid back down on his pillow with his eyes still fixated at the cat on the windowsill. Just before his eyelids fell shut, he saw the cat slowly turn its head in his direction and saw its eyes looking into his. It felt as if he had been asleep once more when he was awakened by another loud, piercing scream. Only this time, it did not come from him. He opened his eyes and sat up in bed. He spotted his cat beside his head, screaming in fear. This time, there was something horrific and disgusting that sounded outside his window. He immediately sprang up in bed and lunged toward it to see where the terrible noise was coming from. The moment he saw what was happening, he suddenly screamed out again in sickening dread. It was as if some sort of gruesome black sea of death were racing into his town and traveling through the streets and climbing over houses, buildings, and any other sort of obstacle in front of it. It was headed straight for his castle. As he saw the putrid dark waves coming near him, he could see it moving in as if it were alive. The closer it came, the more he could hear the hideous, loud squeaking. Then he caught a very foul-smelling odor emitting from it. It was then that the black waves began to climb up the castle walls as he cried out. 
He then thought he heard those hideous noises coming from behind and above him, and the ruler glanced up to see the swarm of the demonic water on the ceiling and pouring in from every hole and crack from the walls and floor. It was then that he realized this was not water, but instead they were thousands upon thousands of ravenous rats. The rats were invading his home, filling every room and corner. The bishop heard the cat still wailing madly, and he saw the hellish mice were leaping on it, and the cat was defenseless against their numbers. The army of rodents that had come were not merely small little mice. Instead, they were large, hairy demon beasts with long, fleshy, pink-white tails and glowing red eyes with rotted teeth protruding from their disgusting mouths. The rats then completely swallowed the cat, and its wailing ceased. At this, the archbishop cried out in terrible panic and immediately made for the exit as the mice began to overtake the walls and all of the furniture in the room. He ran down the enormous staircase and shoved open the door, not even bothering to summon his servants or guards. He made his way onto the empty streets, and for a moment he glanced back at his dwelling. Those vile creatures were spilling out from everywhere, rushing down the steps and climbing down the windows and down the castle, onto the floors and coming out of the door. This horrified him even more, and he continued to run as fast as he could. Those loathsome squeaks filled the air, growing more menacing as the chase continued. At one point, the archbishop blocked his ears as he ran, because their screams were maddening. At last he reached the Rhine. He had never been so thankful to see its waters glimmering in the moonlight, a moonlight there unlike his dream. For a moment, it appeared that luck was on his side. He spotted a small rowboat anchored near the riverbank, and he immediately hopped aboard. He cast off and stroked the oars powerfully, his old arms gaining strength from the horrible fear that embraced him. He did his absolute to avoid gazing at the living swamp of hell, as he felt himself getting overtaken by absolute dread whenever he did. There was something hideously uncanny about those rats. Their eyes shined with a grotesque red color, and their mouths salivated hideously. They had a revenant quality to them, and they were certainly out for blood. The question remained, why him? What did he do to bring about this nightmarish plague? Whenever he felt himself growing tired, he would turn back just for an instant at those monstrous rats that were rigorously pursuing him. The horror would fill his soul once again, and this would give him new strength to stay alive. The archbishop finally reached the shore of his last sanctuary, the tower in which he used to make passing ships pay their respects. He shoved the door open and slammed it shut behind him and he scrambled up the steps panting and perspiring badly. The journey had taken a severe toll on his old body and he began to climb the steps of the roof exhaustively on all fours. <laughs> like the rats. Since he looked back very few times, he could not tell how many rats were there. He could see a small portion of them beginning to drown in the Rhine, 
but that could never properly show how many or how far behind him they were. As he got on the roof of his tower, he caught his breath and stood there with one hand on his chest. He coughed powerfully into his hand, and when he stared at his palm, he could see a spot of blood. He felt himself going to die soon, as his lungs were beginning to feel heavy, and he felt dizzy. As he stared at the blood stain, he thought he could see an evil skull-like appearance to it. <laughs> it was as if death had marked him next. He collapsed onto his hands and knees, willing to accept his fate after this tormenting ordeal. But to his surprise and horror, he heard those maleficent squeaks coming down from below his tower and increasing at an alarming rate. With all the energy he had left, he crawled over to the parapet and peered down. He screamed out in absolute terror as he saw the demonic army of mice surrounding and crawling up his sanctuary. He fell on his back and began crawling backwards, away from the edge and into the center of the rooftop. The bishop lay there trembling with fear and whimpering as he heard the devils approaching nearer in their unrelenting onslaught. Finally, the mice came over the parapet and onto the roof, beginning to mercilessly encircle him from the front, back and sides. In the delirium of fear, he began to plead to the rats to spare his life and have mercy upon him, and that if so, he would be a godly man. But the rats merely took over the tower, and with a final burst of energy, he cried out for mercy one last time. The mice crawled over his body, gnawing and tearing off bits of his clothes and flesh, it wasn't long until the monsters all overran him and continuously piled upon him in the roof, screeching repulsively, with hundreds of them either chewing on a strip of his clothing or flesh. The only thing he heard other than the squeaking was the yells and screams of the archbishop as he was being devoured. The next morning, a large number of the townsmen went to see their ruler, only to discover that he wasn't there and many servants and guards had no idea where he had gone. No one had heard the invasion of the mice or the cries of the bishop. As they went on a large manhunt for days, they finally found his wretched remains on the rooftop, his bones stripped of flesh and with no sign of what had done it. However, the townsfolk discovered the claw and teeth marks of his holy garments to be those of rats, Thus, the locals and their descendants came to call this tower the Mouse Tower. Many of the contemporary locals near Mouse Tower whisper nervously about it and refrain from going near it due to the devilish activities that go on near the area. Some say they can hear the screeches of the rabid, vicious rats, although they can never be seen. Others say they can hear the voice of the old man shrieking in horror and anguish mixed amid the squeaks. Some accounts claim they can even see the entire sea of mice surrounding and crawling up the tower on full moon nights, only to vanish moments later. Some claim, however, that the hideous rats that devoured the cruel bishop were the vengeful ghosts of the unfortunate peasants who had burned alive. 
<laughs> Whatever might be the legend, the Mouse Tower leaves a terrible and haunting reminder of what happened to a wicked ruler hundreds of years ago. I was shown into the attic chamber by a grave, intelligent-looking man with quiet clothes and an iron-gray beard who spoke to me in this fashion. Yes, he lived here, but I don't advise you doing anything. Your <laughs> curiosity makes you irresponsible. We never come here by night, and it's only because of his will that we keep it this way. You know what he did. That abominable society took charge at last, and we don't know where he is buried. There was no way the law or anything else could reach the society. I hope you won't stay till after dark, and I beg of you to let that thing on the table, the thing that looks like a matchbox, alone. We don't know what it is, but we suspect it has something to do with what he did. <laughs> we even avoid looking at it very steadily. After a time, the man left me alone in the attic room. It was very dingy and dusty, and only primitively furnished but it had a neatness which showed it was not a slum denizen's quarters. There were shelves full of theological and classical books, and another bookcase containing treatises on magic, Paracelsus, Albertus Magnus, Trithemius, Hermes Trismegistus, Borlus, and others in strange alphabets whose titles I could not decipher. The furniture was very plain, there was a door, but it led only into a closet. The only egress was the aperture in the floor up to which the crude, steep staircase led. The windows were of bullseye pattern, and the black oak beams bespoke unbelievable antiquity. Plainly, this house was of the old world. I seem to know where I was, but cannot recall what I then knew. Certainly, the town was not London. My impression is of a small seaport. The small object on the table fascinated me intensely. I seemed to know what to do with it, for I drew a pocket electric light, or what looked like one, out of my pocket and nervously tested its flashes. The light was not white but violet and seemed less like true light than like some radioactive bombardment. I recall that I did not regard it as a common flashlight. <laughs> Indeed, I had a common flashlight in another pocket. It was getting dark, and the ancient roofs and chimney pots outside looked very queer through the bullseye window panes. Finally, I summoned up courage and propped the small object up on the table against a book, then turned the rays of the peculiar violet light upon it. 
The light seemed now to be more like a rain or hail of small violet particles than like a continuous beam. As the particles struck the glassy surface at the center of the strange device, they seemed to produce a crackling noise, like the sputtering of a vacuum tube through which sparks are passed. The dark glassy surface displayed a pinkish glow, and a vague white shape seemed to be taking form in its center. Then I noticed that I was not alone in the room and put the ray projector back in my pocket. The newcomer did not speak, nor did I hear any sound whatever during all the immediately following moments. Everything was shadowy pantomime, as if seen at a vast distance through some intervening haze. Although, on the other hand, the newcomer and all the strange subsequent comers loomed large and close, as if both near and distant according to some abnormal geometry. The newcomer was a thin, dark man, of medium height, attired in the clerical garb of the Anglican Church. He was apparently about thirty years old, with a sallow olive complexion and fairly good features, but an abnormally high forehead. His black hair was well cut and neatly brushed, and he was clean-shaven, though blue-chinned, with a heavy growth on his beard. He wore rimless spectacles with steel bows. His build and lower facial features were like other clergymen I had seen, but he had a vastly higher forehead, and was darker and more intelligent-looking, although more subtly and concealedly evil-looking. At the present moment, having just lighted a faint oil lamp, he looked nervous, and before I knew it, he was casting all his magical books into the fireplace on the window side of the room, where the wall slanted sharply, which I had not noticed before. The flames devoured the volumes greedily, leaping up in strange colors and emitting indescribably hideous odors as the strangely hieroglyphed leaves and wormy bindings succumbed to the devastating element. All at once, I saw that there were others in the room, grave-looking men in clerical costume, one of whom wore the bands and knee breeches of a bishop. Though I could hear nothing, I could see that they were bringing a decision of vast import to the first comer. They seemed to hate and fear him at the same time, and he seemed to return those sentiments. His face set itself into a grim expression, but I could see his right hand shaking as he tried to grip the back of the chair. The bishop pointed to the empty case and to the fireplace where the flames had died down amidst a charred, non-committal mass and seemed filled with a peculiar loathing. The first comer then gave a wry smile and reached out with his left hand towards the small object on the table. Everyone then seemed frightened. The procession of clerics began filing down the steep stairs through the trap door in the floor, turning and making menacing gestures as they left. The bishop was the last to go. 
the first commander went to the cupboard on the inner side of the room and extracted a coil of rope. Mounting a chair, he attached one end of the rope to a hook in the great exposed central beam of black oak and began making a noose with the other hand. Realizing he was about to hang himself, I started forward to dissuade or save him. He saw me and seized his preparations, looking at me with a kind of triumph which puzzled and disturbed me. He slowly stepped down from the chair and began gliding towards me with a positively wolfish grin on his dark, thin-lipped face. I felt somehow in deadly peril, and I drew out the peculiar ray projector as a weapon of defense. Why I thought it could help me, I do not know. I turned it on, full in his face, and saw the sallow features glow first with violet and then with pinkish light. His expression of wolfish exultation began to be crowded aside by a look of profound fear, which did not, however, wholly displace the exultation. He stopped in his tracks then flailed his arms wildly in the air and began to stagger backward. I saw he was edging toward the open stairwell in the floor and tried to shout a warning, but he did not hear me. In another instant, he had lurched backward through the opening and was lost from view. I found difficulty in moving toward the stairwell, but when I did get there, I found no crushed body on the floor below. Instead, there was a clatter of people coming up with lanterns, for the spell of phantasmal silence had broken, and I once more heard the sounds and saw figures as normally tridimensional. Something had evidently drawn a crowd to this place, Had there been a noise that I had not heard? Presently, the two people, simply villagers apparently, farthest in the lead, saw me and stood paralyzed. One of them shrieked loudly and reverberantly. Ah, it be Izur again? Then they all turned and fled frantically. All that is but one. When the crowd was gone, I saw the grave-bearded man who had brought me to this place, standing alone with a lantern. He was gazing at me gaspingly and fascinatedly, but did not seem afraid. Then he began to ascend the stairs and joined me in the attic. He spoke. So, you didn't let it alone. Sorry, I know what has happened. It happened once before, but that man got frightened and shot himself. You ought not to have made him come back. You know what he wants, but you mustn't get frightened like the other man he got. Something very strange and terrible has happened to you, but it didn't get far enough to hurt your mind and personality. 
if you'll keep cool and accept the need for making certain radical readjustments in your life, you can keep right on enjoying the world and the fruits of your scholarship. But you cannot live here, and I don't think you'll wish to go back to London. <laughs> I'd advise America. You mustn't try anything more with that thing. Nothing can be put back now. It would only make matters worse to do or summon anything. You are not as badly off as you might be. But you must get out of here at once and stay away. You'd better thank heaven it didn't go further. I'm going to prepare you as bluntly as I can. <laughs> There's been a certain change in your personal appearance. <laughs> the room to the mirror, the faint lamp, that formerly on the table, not the still fainter lantern he had brought in his free hand. This is what I saw in the glass. A thin, dark man of medium stature, attired in the clerical garb of the Anglican Church, apparently about thirty, and with rimless, steel-bowed glasses glistening beneath a sallow olive forehead of abnormal height. It was the silent first-comer who had burned his books. For all the rest of my life, in outward form, I was to be that man. Like almost every drinking bet, things started with a stupid conversation. It was St. Patrick's Day and late. The pub crowd was beginning to thin, and we were finally able to share drinks at the counter. Well, share drinks, and stare at Ashton McTeague's tech hammerer in yoga pants. After several minutes of whispering and grinning at each other, Mike glanced over his shoulder, then back at Ashlyn, leaned over the counter and declared that her ass would make a gay priest give up altar boys. To which Owen replied, So, does that mean she has a boy's ass?" This elicited howls of laughter and all kinds of cheers. Ashlyn accepted the inebriated praise with mock gratitude, and asked in return if we'd all been raped as boys, and if that meant we couldn't tell the difference between male and female rears. That comment sent us into a litany of various anti-Catholic sentiments, stated in between requests for Ashland to display her asset for our physical re-education. 
Though as the tourist of the group, I knew her the least, I could tell our insistence had worn very thin. She slammed my pint of Guinness down and stared at all of us, eyes dark. I dare you fuckers to go into a real church and say those things, she said. We laughed, and Mike licked up the spilled Guinness, trying to demonstrate his prowess with his tongue. She did not blanch, but crossed her arms over her tiny chest and narrowed her eyes. I bet none of our bastards would have the balls to profane any of the sacraments. I dare you, boys. I dare you. Walk into a Catholic church and say things like what you just said. She grabbed Mike's glass and flung its contents right into his face. We stared at her, silent a moment, then burst into further laughter at her audacity. We harassed her with questions about her stance on religion and the Pope, then added various jokes about what she had done with the nuns. But she remained serious and reiterated her bet. And what'll you do if we accept this bet? Go to a church, come back and all. Well, to prove you bastards have done it, I'll be coming with you, if you have the balls and wits to take the dare. And what's your bet? The bet's that you'll do it. And if you do, I'll kiss each one of you, all as long as you like. And I'll give tourist boy here, perhaps a bit more. Upon her so saying, the lads howled again and slapped my back with congratulations. But if you go there with me and fool around, piss yourselves and idle in the dare, then I'll count your low fuckers all and you'll apologize. I apologize like men or I'll tell my boss and never let you back in here again. Our group deliberated briefly, just to make things look official, but before she'd even finished speaking, we had all decided amongst ourselves that we'd do as she asked. We even agreed to let her pick the church for us. She chose an ancient site, Dunlui, the remote old place east of the Lou, bearing the same name. Her choice surprised us. We half expected her to pick a major establishment and send us in to make hopeless fools of ourselves. Though we didn't think so at the time, she probably chose the site out of pure sympathy for our state. The drive from Letterkenny, west on R-251, was long, and took a good hour or more, since Ashland drove miles under the speed limit in her van. Perhaps she had wanted to attract even less attention from the fuzz, considering her drunken cargo. Either way, drive did us good, and by the time we crossed through Glanvie, our group was fairly sober, enough to hold semi-sentient conversation with her. By the time we reached the site, we were almost more excited to explore the stark countryside than make good on the actual bed. She parked the car in the saffron-hued wild grasses and joked if we all needed assistance getting out. While the rest of the lads careened toward the church, I stayed back a ways and walked with Ashlyn. She tried to scowl at me, but a playful smile appeared on her face when I pretended to retch. She knelt beside me and quickly dragged her fingers through my hair, mussing it up like a mate. I caught her hand, and she bit her lip. We walked up to the church, past a curious framed gravestone, the only one in the entire lawn. The moon broke through the dense ghostly clouds, revealing a stern edifice that appeared pitiless in the cold light. I turned to Ashlyn, surprised she had brought us there, but she smiled and explained some of the building's history. 
I suddenly remembered reading in my Frommers Ireland about a haunted church in the Poisoned Glen, and now that I saw the actual structure the book described, I shivered. I couldn't imagine how such a harsh, needle-like thing could afford any comfort or friendliness, past or present. Its exterior was of white marble, now wickedly stained from years of exposure to the elements, and seemed almost black, like basalt. The entrance, or narthex, to the place lay directly beneath the bell tower, the sheer height of which increased the dread I now felt. Four triangular spires decorated the tower's roof like the fangs of a wolf, tipped with brass ornaments that gleamed in the dim light. Once inside, I could see the spacious nave, a skeletal thing in its roofless state that made me feel exposed. Nothing, of course, remained of the old furnishings, but an empty floor that reverberated with the calls of my friends. They beckoned Ashlyn and I to join them, posing like gargoyles beneath the soaring windows. So, are we doing the bet or not? I glanced at Ashlyn. My friends, sensing my hesitance, voiced their frustrations, but did not protest my withdrawal from the bet, rather tried to convince me to continue, regardless of the outcome. It's Paddy's day, for Christ's sakes, William, and you needn't be scared, poor boy. There is no longer any priests to make a Nancy boy out of you, chum. Suddenly there came a faint hiss from the back of the church that echoed across the floor of the nave. We all froze for a moment, unsure if the sound had come from one of us or was just the wind. My friends crept towards me, staggering like mock zombies. It's the fart of a priest coming for you, William, they teased. The hiss came again, this time louder, sharper, like an agitated exhalation. I could almost hear a voice behind it as its echo expired into the night. Then I did hear a voice, a strange, withered voice, that resounded in the nave. Again we froze. We listened for the origin of the words. Venite. Venite, Hyriticorum. We scanned the dark windows of the belfry. Nothing. The sound did not seem to be coming from above, but across from us somewhere. We checked the sanctuary's windows. Still nothing. Then we saw a scarlet shape flash for a brief second in the doorway to the chancel. We drew together, shaking, then advanced toward the shape. My tongue cleaved to the roof of my mouth. There, perched on a strange glassy chair, sat a hooded figure draped in black. At its feet lay a red beast, curled up, glowing like embers. Its distinctive scales left us in little doubt as to its species. A dragon. It was small, 
hauntingly diminutive, an ancient beast shrunken into a malignant horror, with wings translucent and fiery like a bat's if set ablaze. At the sight of us, it raised its head and gave a terrible cry. Its rancor pierced the air and stung our ears. As if in response to the beast, the hooded figure raised its right hand into the air, palm up, cupped as though it contained some substance invisible to us. It spoke the same words as before, then tilted its hand, pouring out the contents within. Then it said, You did see him, pointing to the spot where what it had poured had landed. Then it pointed to the creature at its feet, saying, Requirit Martin. The dragon thing rose upon hearing this and crawled towards us. Each step of its clawed feet left a molten mark on the floor behind it. We ran for the van. I seized Ashland's arm and dragged her with me, not caring if I hurt her and not daring to look behind. Mike made it there first, and Ashland tossed the keys to him. Before I'd even shut my door, Ashland had put the fan in reverse and was speeding down the gravel road, almost tipping it over in her haste. When we hit the pavement of R-251, she pushed even harder, driving until she hit the limiter on the van's accelerator. I still don't know how fast we drove. In fact, none of us did for all four of us had our eyes on the mirrors and on the road behind. The police pulled us over as we reached the outskirts of Letterkenny. They cuffed us all, thinking we were high on meth. But we were just overjoyed from the sight of their flashing lights. All of us gladly accepted a night in jail. In fact, Ashland begged to be taken there with us, even though she had passed the field sobriety tests. But in the end they sent her home, amid wild protestations by us lads. All of us were sick when they took her away, but were relieved an hour into our booking when we saw her enter the detention center. They ended up booking her for striking one of the peelers. She told us later she did that, just to get some protection from the night. After 24 hours they released us back into society, but we couldn't go back. Instead, we all joined up at the bus station, took a ride into Dublin, and are now renting a three-room apartment. We haven't left the building, except to buy some food. We eat as much as possible from the vending machines. We aren't concerned about clothes or toiletries. We just wash what's on our backs in the sink. It's too risky to go outside for anything else. Lately, we've been thinking of taking a ferry to Cardiff, and then the train to London. We may travel even further and go into mainland Europe. Anything to stay away from that horror. Yet somehow, when I finally fall asleep at night by the front door, a crowbar and kitchen knife by my side, I am convinced we haven't outrun the thing we saw sitting in the Dunluwe church, or the Red Beast... It sent after us. (laughs) 
The tall man lay dying. Thought of as beautiful during his youth and terrible at the height of his power, he now lay wrapped in costly linens on a massive carved bed, as if ready for burial. His large hands, skeletal from the sickness, yet strong and fierce, grip the dampened bedclothes like the talons of a wounded eagle falling from its high-flown perch. The fever, the harbinger of death, has ravaged his body for days and will claim him before another fortnight has passed. Heavy velvet draperies are drawn tight against a bustling newborn world that swarms outside the dying man's walls. The blood upon his lips, blood which stains his clothing and his flesh, and betrays the nature of his sickness as if it had betrayed the lives of prince and beggar and priest, without remorse, lays unwashed for all to see. The man's fever crests and breaks, then claims him again, drawing him deep into the cloying embrace of the last abyss, yet unfathomed in his soul. In his sleep he cries out the name of a man draped in scarlet splendor, the cardinal who is his own son and who will one day be pope. The son has journeyed far from Rome to serve upon his father the last holy rite that Christendom confers upon the living. The cardinal has now departed returning to Rome. The room is dark, empty, still as a waiting tomb. The dying man slowly opens his eyes. His breath is shallow and he coughs. The blood comes again and then he is silent. The furtive, hurried rustle of sweeping garments catches his attention. His eyes sift the gloaming darkness of the chamber but no one is there. A weak sigh escapes his lips. He hears a soft murmur. An old woman sits unmoving in a chair beside the waning fire, her head obscured behind a fringed shawl. Suddenly she turns her head, and he sees her eyes are wild with horror. She opens her mouth to scream, but only silence emerges from the dark pit of her throat. Then a tiny man in lace and green velvet crawls out from between her parted lips. The hideous imp gazes about, then yawns and lazily scratches his crotch. The dying man sees that the mouth of the creature is the beak of an egret, but contains many rows of sharp razor-like teeth. Lorenzo almost faints from loss of reaction, but his eyes remain open, locked upon the grotesque spectacle. The old woman falls to the floor. Her dried flesh is nothing more than a discarded, empty husk, as thin and yellowed as parchment, and split open like old leather in many places. The sick man wretches violently with revulsion. He cries out, but no one hears. 
another sound roars within his ears. He is overwhelmed by a suffocating odor and a red vision all at once, as if the whole of Florence was engulfed in a blazing funeral pyre. But then he remembers. He is not in Florence. He is at Caregi. The dying man begs for release to claim him, but death abandons him to tremble at the shore of a monstrous gaping abyss. As the fevered tide recedes, the tortured throes weaken their hold on Lorenzo's body. He raises himself up and gazes straight into the black, unblinking eyes of a gigantic yellow pig perched on the end of his bed. The pig offers its hideous nakedness from beneath the soiled habit of a cloistered nun. The veil of purity rests askew atop its grizzled head as bloated lips curl in a parody of prayer and lust and unclean hooves finger the beads of a rosary. A renewed paroxysm grips the body of the Prince of the Medici as spectral fingers of soulless depravity march in unhallowed silence from the shadows of the darkened chamber. Glittering beetles with the wings of red bats and ram's horns fornicate wantonly with the corpulent virgins clothed only in the virtue of their failed modesty. Rabid dogs prance about proudly on malformed hind legs, sporting the withered arms and heads of old toothless men who offer all manner of unnatural and fantastic creatures for him to behold. Serpents with the heads of women and crowned with wolf's ears curl and twine sinuously about the cold stone floor, then disappear under the bed. Countless unseemingly wonders cavort about obscenely before him, displaying hideous malignant trophies and their own brutal mutilations with equal delight. Lorenzo dares not close his eyes for even an instant. A tarnished golden harp with broken strings mates with a crushed mandolin, birthing blood-stained monsters which rape his sobbing, reddened ears with their haunted, infernal melodies. He is a good man, a prince among new nobility. He will attain the most precious jewel imaginable, immortality of name. But he does not know this, and he will never taste the future he has helped to secure for his heirs, in both name and spirit. So he weeps, as his claw-like hands grasp the filthy, dampened linens of his deathbed. After a time, he surrenders to something of a dreamless peace. The next morning, a serving woman comes to Lorenzo's rooms and throws wide the heavy draperies to the blinking daylight sun. The cheerful golden rays stab torturously upon his tear-stained eyes. The coughing begins again, and the woman stands at his bedside, gently wiping away the blood, old and newly flowed. She caresses his forehead with a cool, damp cloth and smiles sadly upon his face. 
The man sighs, too exhausted to speak, unable to even thank the woman for her gentle kindness. A fading dream licks hungrily at the still dark corners of his memory. Nothing but a dream of the night before. There are no monsters in the man's heart, no horrors to chase away the bright sunlight which shines upon his palace, no night beast at large to haunt the rational world of men. The woman departs the chamber, and a dark shape silently enters Lorenzo's presence and closes the great carved door behind him so that they may be alone. Lorenzo knows this man. He has paid many visits to these darkened chambers over the last days of this illustrious life. Dominicane. Ah, yes. The Dominican. The horrific specters of the fevered nighttime dream have fled the day, but this man who stands before him, the greatest of all nightmares he will ever know, will not leave. And while the son of Lorenzo de' Medici has journeyed far from Rome, draped in scarlet splendor to sanctify his father's soul and wish him God's speed to heaven, this man, this Dominican in filthy tattered robes, has come to tear his soul from his breast and cast him into hell. In 1492, Lorenzo de' Medici, called the Magnificent by history, lay dying in the Villa Careghi in the Tuscan hills outside his beloved Florence. It is both widely rumored and equally denied that the nefarious prelate Savonarola paid Lorenzo a visit during which he damned his soul to an unrelenting eternity in hell. This is an imagined vision of what such a meeting might have meant to a man in the delirium of his deathbed and illustrated via the infernal terrains of their contemporary, the brilliant but troubled Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> 